Hello, and welcome to Sound of Play. My name is Ryan Heyman, and today we have a very special episode. But before I get into that, I wanted to briefly talk about the song that played us in here. Uh, this is one of the songs from the Cameo Elements of Power soundtrack. You'll remember Cameo from Kane and Rinse issue number 173. That was a launch title on the Xbox 360, and recently got a second lease on life as a part of the Rare Replay collection on the Xbox One. Uh, back in Kane and Rinse issue 173, you'll remember the, the panel and I having debates about various aspects of the game and how well things have aged over time. But I think of the panel, we pretty much uniformly agreed that the soundtrack was uh, one of the major highlights. And so ever since Sound to Play started, I've been uh, just really excited to play more cameo music for everybody because it's a marvelous soundtrack from beginning to end. A lot of really diverse and really just deep, rich orchestral fantasy fare. Uh, so I'm, I wanted to play a little bit more cameo, but tonight I can do one better than that. Because joining me in the Kanan Rents virtual studio, so to speak, we have the composer of that very piece himself. We have Mr. Steve Burke. And hi there, Ryan. It's, uh, it's great to be here on the other side of the world and uh, really looking forward to taking part in this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. It's a, it's a big honor to have you on board. Steve, you'll remember, was a composer over at Rare and has uh, since left the company, but is doing a little bit of independent work and some collaborations with former Rare people, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But for now, let's just kind of go into a little bit of your history in um, in composing. How did you get your start in music? I guess I started really quite young. Um, I started playing the piano when I was around seven years old, eight years old. And even right back then, I can remember going to see a film. Uh, it was called The Entertainer. This uh, is like many, many years ago. And I can remember seeing that movie at a cinema. And even when I was like seven, eight years old, I came back and I was like, oh, you know what? The, the thing I remember about that movie is the music, that theme tune. And I, I kind of worked out in a very simplistic way how to kind of play this melody, this theme on the piano. And mm. uh, from there, you know, it, I kind of was more interested in it. I started taking piano lessons and, you know, learning the, the basics behind, you know, the theory of, 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 you know, how you write music, how music comes together. And uh, for years and years, I, I, you know, I learned the piano and eventually went on to play uh, other instruments like clarinet and a tenor saxophone. And I joined the school orchestras. So... From, from quite a young age, I was you know, really into, into music and I kind of had this fascination with um, music in the context of, at that, at that early time, in the context of a movie. It's like something I could remember, you know, uh, after I'd seen the film and weeks, months, years later, I can still remember what it was like seeing that movie and hearing those themes. It, you know, it kind of, it, it just helps you remember what you were feeling and thinking at that point in the movie, if you associate what you're hearing. Pairing the music with something visual, which is uh, actually one of the things that we said in the Kanan Rents um, cameo soundtrack, is that the, the music pairs so nicely with the visuals that are on screen, which are all very uh, kind of luscious, high fantasy. Um, you know, I, I still remember kind of walking around the Enchanted Kingdom and its day-night cycle and this uh, magnificent architecture and, and rainbows and swans swimming through the pool and, and particle effects hitting all the light in the right way. And just like the music felt like it was such an inseparable part of that world. Um, it sounds like kind of a similar thing that you're describing, the, the integral relationship of the uh the visual medium and the the musical composition that goes alongside of it yeah i mean I, that was something i was fascinated with as a kid and 
Um, and also quite soon after I was starting to play the piano, it was like I was also starting to get into playing computer games. And that was back mm. in the days of the, the Commodore 64. That was my, uh, my first uh, computer I had at home. And uh, for years and years, you know, I played on that. And I, I can, you know, even now I can remember, I can remember the, the theme tunes to pretty much any of the, the games I played on that. And that was part of the reason why I'd actually buy some of those games. And it wasn't just me. It was all my, you know, all my friends at school are saying, hey, did you get this latest game? And, you know, what do you think of the music for it? And it was, it was you know, even back in those days, there was this tremendous fascination with, um, you know, how the music works, especially in a game. And this was all like chip-based music. You know, they only had perhaps four channels or two channels of, of audio in some of these early games. But it didn't make any difference. It, you know, it, it was... Uh, it made the game exciting and there were memorable tunes and um, it, it just made the whole experience of playing that game so much more fun, I think. Yeah, it was a really exciting time of experimentation within the, the musical sphere, which is kind of surprising on such simple computers to have a real uh, race to the top between these composers slash like mathematical programmers who were figuring out how to leverage these you know three or four channels that they had to work with to create uh kind of deceptively deep compositions at the time and we'll hear a little bit more of of one of your selections of of those commodore 64 hits in just a little bit here but i i wanted to ask also you mentioned that you started playing instruments at a very young age Uh, when was it that you started taking your hand to composing original works i guess when i was um probably around 13 or 14 years old. And uh, I think at that point I was using the Amiga, the Amiga A500, um, hmm. which was my, the next uh, computer system I had at home after the Commodore 64. So it, it was like in the, in the playground at school, I can remember where it was like this division between people who had the Atari ST and people who had the Amiga. And it was this, oh, no, no. The Amiga's the best, and the other guys, no, no, the Atari ST is the best because of this. And, you know, apparently at the time, the like the MIDI features were um, a lot stronger. I think in the Atari, it had the, the better software, it was more accurate with the timings. Um, but anyway, I know st- I stuck with Commodore, I stuck with my Amiga, and um, so uh, yeah, I guess at that point I kind of moved on from being you know fascinated by the, the games and the music I was hearing in the games to actually thinking, oh, what. Could I have a go at doing that myself? And I'd started on, um, like, uh, oh no, I think it was called the Mod Tracker. This is in the mod days. So you'd have, at that point, I think I had four channels and you could load up your individual little sounds. You could sample your own sounds if you wanted to, or um, there's some banks that you could download. And you'd put these, um, these notes. It wasn't in musical notation. It was like it's just little dots on a screen. And, you know, they kind of lined up in bars and phrases and you can repeat, you know, like section A, section B, A, A, C, all this sort of stuff and build it up. And and that's the way that I found out that people were actually writing music for a lot of these games anyway. They were using similar software. I I, I guess this was kind of after the stage of on on, uh, consoles or computers like the Commodore 64. I think it was really technical. You you mentioned before it was like quite, quite a technical challenge to create that music. And I think it was. I think it was a lot of it was coding. You know, they'd have to... Um, they'd have to write in software, play this sound for this duration, um, loop it here, and uh, really quite technical stuff. And I think um, some of the, the great music from those days was the, the people who had that balance between uh, musical knowledge and uh, interest in, in software coding. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of created their own sound, like Rob Hubbard created his own unique sound because the way he 
he used that software and he worked the way he programmed those sounds along with his you know brilliance of actually coming up with really cool themes um you know it, it, it's fascinating to see that so I, I guess i came i started at the next generation on that where the software was already there and i didn't have to actually type in code i could you know have the nice visual display and i could drop sounds onto things and start building music up through there i, I kept on doing that and you know the software also slowly developed um you know towards the end of the amiga days and early pc days they started to have some some pretty decent notation software so i'd take you know to some of the things i'd learned about you know, classical music and then I could, mm-hmm. uh, I could actually see, you know, I could put the notes on the screen and I could load up instruments and play those sounds all through the computer. So right from the start, I was, I was always interested in that, um, the blend of, um, of you know, traditional music writing and understanding of music and the technology. Relatively young people who did not have access to all these different instruments could compose for something that uh, ended up sounding, you know, a little computery, but this is a um, a real full fledged composition that you were able to make at a you know relatively young age. Yeah, and also uh, I guess the accessibility of it then, because you didn't have to buy mm, yeah, fancy absolutely. keyboards and expensive um, you know audio equipment and you know what you generally expected to do these days. In those days, it was just my you know it was just my Amiga you know, and I bought it. Well, my parents bought it for me to play games. Same with everybody else at that at that time. <laughs> but it's like, ah, it also does this, and you know, Octomod or whatever it's called, and a mod tracker was was free at the time, so you know, it didn't cost anything to you know to be able to learn this as long as you got an interest in it. And I, I guess after all that sort of stuff, so I, I kept on focusing on the uh, the classical side and you know getting further ahead in the piano. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I guess that when I was about 18 or 19, I decided that I really wanted to, you know, try and take this, you know, as a career. At, at the time, I was quite interested in, in software support and computers and things. I thought that was what I was going to do as a job. But instead, I, I actually took a, a course in music. I, I went to London, I moved to London mm-hmm. to study music at King's College London. And that was a like a, a the course was the music course, but it, you could... Um, specialize in composition and uh, harmony and counterpoint and conducting and all these sort of things. So at that point, um, yeah, I, I kind of really took it up, I guess, to the next stage. And, you know, I focused on it pretty much full time as a study. And then continue your study at the Royal College of Music, doubling down on the like, classical training that you had growing up as well. You did a little composition for film before you got into video games? Yeah. When I went to university, I was um, I studied composition. At that point, there was no you know, composition for games course. You know, we, we didn't do anything right. like that. You, you, know, you just learned composition, that was it. So I did that as an undergraduate at, at King's College London. But because I was so interested in the film music side, um, I took the opportunity then to... I also went to the Royal Academy of Music, uh, and I studied with some, um, some of the top film... Uh, orchestrators, these guys who you know, orchestrate the music for the full orchestra, and um, also learn more about conducting and composition for for film, but still, you know, for for orchestra, basically, kind of classical film music is, is what I learned there in the extra courses. Uh, so yeah, so after the undergraduate, I went on to uh, the Royal College of Music and did a master's degree in composition there. And that one I really did focus on music for film. I spent you know, most of the year writing music for uh, student projects and you know collaborating with people uh you know students in the art colleges who are making maybe short films and you know basically just meeting people in in london who were you know part of the film music industry going along to recording sessions at abbey road and airedale and places like this after i left university i actually worked for a film composer called guy mitchellmore and he's at the moment he's he's been doing lots of music for the 
um, Marvel movies, not the, not the, the the feature films, but the animations. There's so many of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very very okay. very very popular. They, um, so he's mm-hmm. been doing a lot of those. But when I worked for Guy um, as his, I was his assistant, it was my first job after leaving university. Leaving university, like a music assistant, so I'd help with the you know day to day running of a business, but also. Um, in the studio stuff, helping with the recordings, uh, maybe helping some orchestration and general musical stuff. So that was great. I did that for two years. So that was um, that was fantastic. Uh, I learned a lot just being around Guy and watching him record stuff and dealing with the business side. And then I thought after a couple of years of doing that, I, I could have either tried to get into the film industry or, and try and focus on that as, you know, by myself as a, as a freelancer. But actually what I, I saw an advert in a game magazine called Edge, which is a, a UK game magazine. Yeah. And yeah, that really. was advertising. This is back in 2000, or the end of 2000. Uh, and they were advertising for a composer and sound designer position at Rare. At the time, it was owned by uh, Nintendo. Mm-hmm. So um, I, having never <laughs> never done sound effects before, I, you know, it was quite a musical background. Um, I, I gave it a shot and, you know, sent my CV in and I just recorded some stuff with, a, with an orchestra in uh, Poland and Bratislava. Um, when I went along with, with Guy to one of his recording sessions, he allowed me to you know, write some of my own music and get it recorded. So I used that stuff on my showreel and that got me the job at Rare, specifically for Cameo, because at the time um, the team were looking for a composer to work on Cameo and I guess they were wanting that kind of music, you know, the uh, the Hollywood sound mm, orchestral yeah, yeah. music, which was exactly the kind of thing I was doing at the time, you know, writing music for orchestras and quite filmy sounding, I guess. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I went along to rare and said, you know, I don't know anything about sound effects, but I'd love to learn about it. And I did, you know, and uh, I got the job and was there for nearly nine years. And, and cameo was the first project I worked on. We had, one kind of curious question from the panel. This is from our uh, Canon Rinse's Darren Gargett. Just wanted to know, what is your favorite wind instrument? Wind instrument? Ooh. Um, I, uh, the Irish whistle. Um, <laughs> I love the sound of... Um, that uh, You can get them in different sizes. So you can get the high-pitched mm-hmm. ones and you can get the lower ones. Um, and they do sound quite different, actually. The lower one sounds really... It's almost like an, a kind of an alto flute kind of sound. But the, the mm. way you play an Irish whistle... Um, you know, it's all those, um, it's not just the notes that you're playing, it's all the stuff in between it, you know, so it's the way you um, kind of pitch your way up to notes and uh, experiment around with ornamentation on various notes and and also the music that you play on it. I mean, I'm fascinated. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing you hear in Titanic or any James Horner score, you know, um, mm, right, he's got right. the, uh, like the, uh, the whistle, the Irish whistle on that. Uh, so that is um, definitely my favorite instrument. I love the sound from it. Very cool. Well, um, looks like you brought a classic Ron Hubbard piece from 1985. Do you want to introduce that song and what it means to you a little bit? So, um, Thing on a Spring. That's that's one of those games I used to play um, back back in those in the early 80s on the Commodore 64. And even now, how long is that? 30 years ago. Even now, I can still remember the theme from that and the music in the game. Uh, from 30 years ago. That's how much of an impression it made. And every time it fires up, you know, you loaded up the game, however long it took in those days, like 10 minutes to load a game. You know, when it, <laughs> if it loaded, if you're looking, it actually loaded, you know, and you get greeted by this, uh, you know, those fantastic graphics and those really catchy tunes. Um, it, it's amazing. I would have never have thought, you know, back when I was a kid playing that game, I could still remember that theme and still remember the, the game because of that music 30 years later. So it made... Uh, 
but this game and also Rob Hubbard's music to Monty on the Run, which is also a, a massively um, one of my favorites as well. But the thing on a spring's got a, you know, a special special place in my memory, so that's why I chose this, this track.
Alright, so, uh, while you were at Rare, you were the lead composer for the Xbox 360 launch title Cameo Elements of Power, quite famously, in the Xbox Live Arcade game uh, Jetpack Refueled, which we'll hear a little bit from later, as well as providing additional music for Kirk Hope's Viva Pinata soundtracks and David Wise's Star Fox Adventures and Viva Pinata Pocket Paradise soundtracks. Uh, what was your role in composing for the Viva Pinata games? Um, so, on Viva Pinata, I... Uh, wrote ooh, about 20 of the romance dances. So uh, the romance dances are quite short. I think they're around 30 seconds or something like that, 30 to 40 seconds. And uh, quite interestingly, the, we wrote the music before the animations were put to the music. So th- these mm. are, you have these characters, and Viva Pinata have the characters, and uh, the romance dances, uh, a.k.a. the mating dances. Um, it, so these characters do a, a specific dance and a, for to a a specific type of music um, for each one of these romance dances. So um, Grant wrote um, all the orchestral, all the backing score, all the, you know, all the sort of level music for um, Viva Pinata. Um, but I also helped out because there was, there was a lot of music to write for the game. So I helped out with, uh, yeah, just, I think it's just over 20 of those um, romance dances. And uh, I think Grant wrote probably another 20 or so as well. Um, but we recorded it in, with an orchestra, actually, we went over and recorded those with a, a big orchestra, and um, yeah. So, additional composer role on that one was basically yeah, just just sort of helping out because there was a, a huge chunk of music that needed writing, and I say Grant was a main composer, and I was happy to help out with that one. I think the romance dances were one of my highlights from playing through that game, just because. They were so unexpected, and you never quite knew what you were going to get. Like there were so many different styles that the uh, those little snippets of music would um, be composed, and they'd all have little kind of musical Easter eggs hidden within them that would evoke ideas of uh, and of the feel of the like the day the earth stood still era sci-fi theremin alien sounding to uh, something that was sounded more like a old rugged western mm. piece and uh, kind of everything in between and so that that must have been a lot of fun to just get to dabble in these very kind of exaggerated little caricatures of these different styles of music just for uh, little bits and pieces here and there i mean usually music comes about by you know the designer or the game producer asking for a you know a particular type of music for a level or a, you know a menu or whatever and you'd usually be given some instructions. Uh, but in this case, it was quite different for these romance dancers. We were given free reign. I mean, um, I think the designer obviously showed us the characters that were going to be on screen. You know, sometimes they might have to say, well, you know, it'd be quite cool if we did, you know, some Western star music on there or, a, you know, a German folk song kind of idea. But sometimes they just said, you know, here's a character and you, know, you go and decide what you think works best. And I, I say it's very unusual. And it was, um, I think that's why all those uh, romance dancers were quite, you know, well, everyone was totally different. You know, every everyone had a completely different style. But the, yeah, um, both Grant and myself had a lot of freedom on that. Um, so it was, it was, yeah, it worked out really nicely. And uh, say so all we had um, were the, uh, you know, the, the time limits. You know, it, you know, don't make it longer than you know whatever it was. I think it was thirty-five seconds, forty seconds, something like that. So that was it. Anything within that time frame, we can do. So we, we wanted to do something that then the, the uh, artists and the animators could choreograph um, the pinatas to dance along to those. So we always had that in mind. After Rare made a few games for the Xbox 360, they uh, took on a, a technical support role. They were kind of famously one of the best studios for 
is providing an advisory role for uh, kind of the technical network type stuff uh, on the Xbox 360 platform. And they developed a lot of the kind of infrastructural Xbox 360 experience, including the Xbox avatars. And um, you went on to compose some of the music for the Xbox avatars. Yeah, so the avatars are on the Xbox 360 dashboard. So basically when you turn your Xbox 360 on, every single one of these game consoles in the world has got the Xbox avatars program on and also the music that I wrote. I think the designer came along one day and... Uh, cause I, you know, he, he sort of wanders around the corridor and I, I was chatting to him and he just mentioned that they were doing this new um, avatars program and said, you know, do you want to, do you want to have a go at doing the, the music and sound effects for it? After some playing around with various ideas. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the final version was I've got 10 minutes of music on over 84 million Xbox 360s. That's a, a quite a lot of exposure there yes. <laughs> for a corridor <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Uh, and it's a way that actually just talking about the way projects come along um i mean sometimes for example at rare you know uh, teams would like working with a particular composer or maybe management mm -hmm. would prefer a certain team working with a certain composer but some of them do come about you know purely almost by accident or just because you're showing an interest i mean i was always interested in any little projects that were coming along and it sounded really cool i thought oh yeah i'd really like to you know to, to do my best on this and yeah, so uh, th th through accident or through design, um, there's lots of different ways that people can be involved in actually creating the audio for games these days. So we have here the Xbox 360 Avatar's main theme, composed by Steve Burke. In 2008, the original version came out with you know, like the first iteration of the avatars. And then mm -hmm. um, I actually left Rare in 2009, and I was hired as a contractor to do the updated version. Uh, it was like the NXE, New Xbox Experience, um, yeah, which yeah. is the one that's currently being used, and that was done in 2010. So I, I actually did a completely fresh set of music in 2010. Did any of your compositions carry over onto the Xbox One? Yeah. Uh, so when the Xbox One came out, um, I can remember the 
uh, uh, the avatar editor actually did use one of my tunes. It was one of the back, like the sort of uh, underscore background tracks. Uh, when you, it might be more than one, but it definitely had it when the Xbox One came out. And then they started updating it and um, you know, changing the layout of the dashboard and the Avatars program. I, I think it's not being used now, but an, on initial release of the Xbox One, yes, they did, they did use the, sound, uh, the music that I wrote for the Xbox 360. Now, kind of the, the big elephant in the room, let's talk a little bit about cameo elements of power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When recording the Cameo soundtrack, you had the chance to record with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, you mentioned that you had composed for live orchestras before um, in your, your previous internship job. What kind of experience had you had working with orchestras on this scale in, in previous jobs? I've worked with pretty big orchestras when I was working for Guy Mitchellmore. But I was, the, my role then was more assistant role, you know, just making sure that the scores were presented properly and the orchestration was checked through. Um, mm-hmm. and booking the musicians and going along to recording sessions. So I, I learned that before I went to Rare. Um, and I, I did something similar like that at, at university as well. You know, we were, some of our projects were to record with, you know, write some music and then orchestrate it, record it with the orchestra to a student film. So I, I, I kind of been through that process um, without the pressure because there's a difference between writing music, I think, for uh, like a student film or as an assistant role, um, Mm-hmm. to a main composer compared to uh recording a whole load of music with a big orchestra uh, for your own project where if things go wrong it, you know the blame will come onto onto uh, me in that case so th- there was a pressure element um which in the end it you know it, it worked out absolutely fine but i was a little bit nervous you know um upon first entering that recording studio to record the the music to cameo because we we had a, an awful lot of music to record we had I think we had three and uh, was it three and a half days booked with the orchestra, an eight-piece orchestra, mm. which we recorded first, and then we had a break for a day, and then we had another day recording with a choir, which is a forty-piece choir. The orchestrator, um, the guy who basically transferred my MIDI scores, I, I, all the music that I recorded with the orchestra, I'd already written using computer samples, and that had already been in the game for quite a long time. So everybody in the uh, rare and at microsoft and anytime we'd shown the game outside the company they'd, they'd heard my version with the you know the midi version of it um mm-hmm. so basically um nick rain who's the conductor and orchestrator on cameo he uh, orchestrated my midi scores into notational scores to put in front of the musicians in prague um, and he did an absolutely stellar job you know absolutely amazing job and yeah. so Nick also is quite famous for orchestrating um, uh, John Barry's score. He, he did a lot of work with John Barry on the James Bond movies. So it was actually, it was really exciting to work with, with Nick. And he was a the consummate professional. You know, he was so cool throughout recording sessions. Yeah, I picked up the Cameo Elements of Power soundtrack on CD. I got it for Christmas a few years ago, back when Cameo was, uh, I don't even know if it was out at that point yet. Um might have been a month or so before or surround that launch window yeah, yeah. Uh, that the soundtracks came out. I picked up that in Perfect Dark Zero and both had just uh, absolutely fantastic soundtracks. And the, the Cameo soundtrack is still one that I listen to all the time to this day just because I, it's, it's such a diverse soundtrack for as, um, as complex as all of the pieces are. There's, um, there's a lot of really like slow kind of uh, choir led pieces that are real soothing um 
you know, the uh, a lament for Salon and the forest glade. And then there's, of course, like we've heard earlier, the hero's theme, uh, kind of a big bombastic battle cry type song. Yeah, just the entire thing. I, I would, uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough to mm-hmm. listeners out there who are into, it's kind of one of my quintessential fantasy scores. But uh, I was curious about, uh, Cameo has a long and storied and uh, somewhat troubled developmental process, originally being slated as a late era N64 game, becoming a highly visible yet still quite mysterious GameCube title. Um, I remember it was even on the um, the back of my box for the GameCube that I bought at launch, which, you know, it never ended up coming out on that platform. But uh, obviously that displayed some level of faith that Nintendo had in the product. It eventually was pushed off to being an Xbox game and finally an Xbox 360 launch title. And over the course of its development, its identity and fundamental aspects of its gameplay changed dramatically. Yet going back to the earliest trailers, many of the musical motifs that were used in the final game were present to some degree or another. Uh, what, What was your role in the changing identity of cameo well my philosophy was don't throw any music away <laughs> so <laughs> so as the game as the game was changing and in, it did change quite a lot because when i joined rare in 2001 um you know the, the idea was this was going to be a um, a gamecube game i started when it was you know on development mm-hmm. on the uh, on the gamecube and this is before microsoft bought rare so i, I was writing music from day one at rare and I, for Cameo, I wrote, oh, well, I, I think I've, uh, I've released, even on my website, if you have a look on my uh, website, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, like a download section. And I, I put most of the music on there. I released maybe four hours or f- over f- maybe f- four and a half hours of, of music. But I actually think I've probably written in total close to five, maybe more. <laughs> five hours of music. So if, this game was completely different when I first joined. Uh, you know, it was it really mm-hmm. was a Nintendo-y style game. So the music, um, you know, was reflected in that, and it was all light and bouncy, and you know, it, it was it was that style of game. Um, and as as development progressed, and it became you know an Xbox and an, an Xbox 360 launch title, so the music changed in the style, just to reflect the graphical style and the direction that the game was going in. But mm-hmm. the, the the thing that I did with this game, and I and I think I think it works quite well. I, I I thought there's more music is better, <laughs> and if you if you utilize the music in the right places, you can have completely different sounding, you know, quirky, fun, Nintendo-y sounding music. Can also work along in the same game as a big bombastic orchestral score with you know you know big choirs and dramatic, filmy sounding music. It's all to do with you know where you put it. You know, each area is going to have a different level, a different style of music. Yeah, um, yeah. Every every time something changes, like the day and night thing, and you know, every time you go and do something, you meet a little character. You go to a little like a hut. There's all these little huts and caves and mm-hmm. things all over the game. And I thought every time you see something new, I'm going to bring in another piece of music because I, you know, the music's there. I'd like to use it, and it, it just seemed to work really well. I made I made an effort to to really use those, you know, a, a totally different styles of music throughout the game to give it a lot of variety. Um, so yeah, so right from the start, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not throwing any of that music away. It's all going in. Even if you go up to like a little jukebox <laughs> in the game, you can, I think you can, oh, yeah, you can, yeah. you can press a jukebox and it starts playing, you know, select track one. It's got some, you know, some tracks that you won't hear anywhere else in the game. That's all from, you know, from my folder of, of music tracks. Mm. How many tracks are wrote? Like 300 
pieces of music or something. Uh, so, so when I recorded with the orchestra, that was only a small portion of the music that was used in the game. That was uh, about 80 minutes um, of music mm-hmm. in a game. And on the, on the soundtrack CD, that's around just under 60 minutes of music. It's like I just kept on writing and writing and writing because I, I was a full-time employee at Rare. Um, you know, I was in the audio department as an employee. Um, and so a lot of the time, you know, most of my time, I guess, was spent doing uh, sound design and recording character voices and uh, script, uh, recording the scripts and uh, implementing the sounds in the game and working with the other sound designers to, you know, make sure everything's there in the game. That was uh, a massive part of the job. So um, whenever, whenever I had free time from that, I'd go and write another tune. Wow, yeah, and there is so much music in that game, like you were saying. Going back to it and just remembering back the first time that I played Cameo right at the Xbox 360 launch, everything about it felt uh, just so inescapably new. Like, this was my first proper HD console. This was my first, you know, look at this cameo universe i you know this was an entirely new ip mm. uh this was you were kind of a new composer to um to that scale of of game and so just everything about it was something new and i think that helped definitely make a very strong impression on me and i can still just remember my first time sitting down and hearing some of those pieces and seeing those visuals paired together and um i i still do think that the game looks quite nice mm. just the artistry that goes into constructing all of the locales and all of the uh architecture and the imagination that goes into just the the visual composition of the world i think complements the soundtrack so nicely and so, um, you know, I, I might be entirely rose-colored glasses with that one, but I, I think that there is still a lot that even the players of today can get by going back to it. And now it's easier than ever with a rare replay on the Xbox One. Now that Cameo kind of has the second lease on life mm. through the rare replay collection, how would you recommend that new players approach the title? Well, I, I think it's. I mean, I haven't played it for. <laughs> I haven't played it since it's come out, um, but. Um, because I played it, so I played it so much when we were making it. You can imagine playing this for five years. And I knew every <laughs> every nook and cranny of that game. Uh-huh. Um, so, and I, it's strange. Uh, whenever you know, any, whenever I work on something and it comes out, it's like I, I find it strange to go back and then play it. And I, I like to keep the yeah, you know, yeah. the memories of when I was making, which I really enjoyed. You know, because that, that was the first game I worked on, first computer game I ever professionally worked on. And you know, I didn't know what I was doing when I first joined. It's like, oh, crikey, you know. <laughs> what do I do here? It, it's all these sounds and things I need doing. So I, I, you know, I, I just did what I thought worked. And thankfully the team were, you know, a great bunch of people. And, you know, I used to just hang out down on the, they call them barns at Red and they've got these sort of little branching out uh, barns from the main office. And I'd be mm-hmm. down there every day, you know, taking down my new sound effects or, you know, little character voices or a new tune I've written. And it was just a really nice environment to, you know, to encourage you to keep on, you know, doing your best, you know, everybody wanted to, you know, make the best game we could. And uh, everybody enjoyed working with each other. I was in a way, <laughs> even though it was, it took a long time to make that game. I was kind of sad when it finished because, you know, I, it was a big chunk of my life um, going, yeah. in, going in and creating the audio for that game. So I was, uh, when it came out, it's like, oh, you know, something missing now. So I guess when people um, play it now, these days, I don't know how it compares to other games, but I still think it was quite unique. The graphic style, I think it was quite unique. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's many other games that, you know, are kind of competing with it in terms of, you know, in a similar style of game. Actually, if I get an Xbox One, I think I might 
yeah, give it a bash and play for it again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the Xbox One version, just a little bit of extra information here, comes with all of the DLC that was released as well after the launch of the Xbox 360 version. So if you play it on Rare Replay, you get all of the magnificent costumes, including a pack that were all fan-created mm. and that Rare kind of lovingly modeled into um, additional costumes for the for the various elemental monsters and stuff. So yeah, um, I would also recommend going back and giving it a go, if nothing else, to listen to mm -hmm. the soundtrack kind of in context of the world that it was built to complement. And uh, taking in those sights and the sounds at the same time, I think kind of bolsters both of them together. And maybe you can get a little bit of that same experience that I had many years ago. Now to kind of shift into like the polar opposite of that, you're bringing to uh, the show a piece of music from Unreal Tournament. You want to introduce that one? Yeah. So I think all throughout um, my life, whenever I play games that, uh, that leave a lasting impression. So, you know, like, like the thing on a spring, that was a, a particular point in my life when, you know, my, my friends would come over and, you know, we were playing on the Commodore 64 and it was all new and exciting. And it's just something that stays with you. So, Unreal Tournament, um, I was at university uh, when this came out. And, you know, people would, in those days would be, uh, I, I think if I get this right, I think we were linking our computers together via serial cables, I think, or Ethernet cables, oh, yes. dangling outside our, uh, outside our rooms and in, down the corridor and into other people's rooms. <laughs> and, and playing this, you know, late on Friday nights, you know, that's the kind of way I roll. And, and I can just remember, um, I can remember, you know, that music firing up and it was like, right, you know, we're going to start playing the game, get ready, focus. And, you know, cause I was a massive, you know, game fan then, uh, you know, I, I couldn't wait to you know get back and, you know, play, you know, another game of Unreal with my friends. And, and just when that, um, when that theme tune plays, it just instantly sets you in the mood for the game, you know, and the tone of the music throughout, throughout the game is, uh, you know, it's, it's perfect. It really is. And it's, it's, it, I guess a more recent, uh, similarity would be something like Halo. You know, uh, when I played Halo, uh, when I was at Rare and um, everybody was playing Halo, uh, all down the, the development barn, you know, with all the different game uh, makers, at lunchtime, you know, 12 o'clock, bang, on the dot, you'd hear the, the Gregorian chants from Halo <laughs> playing out of every person's TV. And so, you know, that was another one of those iconic uh, pieces of music. And it's, so, yeah, so the first version, the, the, my first memorable time playing a multiplayer game was uh was unreal tournament and uh this music certainly brings back memories of it we 
was the menu music from Unreal Tournament from 1999. All right, so after finishing up with Cameo Elements of Power, you went on to compose for Jetpack Refueled. This was a, uh, I don't want to call it a remake, but a an extension of the ideas that were proposed in uh, one of Rare's oldest games. Maybe their oldest? I, I don't know. Uh, probably somewhere around the first, you mm. know, handful of games called Jetpack which uh, Donkey Kong 64 uh, players will remember being frustrated by. It's actually a a lovely little game. It's on the Xbox One collection as well, um, with a very handy rewind functionality as well for all those times, which you will inevitably mess up because this was back when uh, video games were very, very hard. (laughs) But um, yeah, kind of a lovely little title, but the original didn't have any music it had some little sound effects and so you were really kind of composing an original score for this because the jetpack series didn't have any musical motifs to draw upon and so uh since this was kind of a sequel of sorts to the classic jetpack uh did you work any nods back to the original into the score no i on Jetpack Refueled, i i did the music but i didn't do any sound effects on it oh hmm. I, I think i did a voice that says uh, there's some is it game over or something I, I did some vocoder effect on my voice but uh, but martin penny did the sound effects for it and i think he did a little bit of a throwback to the loading music that you'd hear on the zx spectrum so mm, you know uh, okay. on the old specky games where you'd you know it'll get all that sort of uh, crunchy beeping and bleeping uh, while the yeah, game's yeah. loading so he actually recreated that um when you load up Jetpack, he recreated that sound. And he, I can remember him mixing it in in Surround in 5.1. So it'd start at the front and it'd kind of like slowly whoosh back to the to the rear speakers. And he'd mixed some other sounds in with it as well. So that was uh, his kind of uh, audio nod to to the original sounds. Mm. Uh, on the music, I mean, uh, the, the reason I got involved in this project was because of uh, one of the lead programmers on Cameo, uh, was, was a guy called Nick Burton. And this was... Um, the jetpack uh, game was his little pet project. Uh, I don't even think he told, you know, management. Uh, we, uh, he was just doing it in his spare time um, initially. And then, you know, it kind of picked up traction. And I think he pitched it to the producer and management and then eventually Microsoft, um, you know, uh, released it. But uh, it was all, it was just a very small team to start off. It was just like three or four people. So I, I wrote the music. I wrote quite a few different variations of music for this. Um, I, I, the first version was very 1950s sci-fi style. I had pheromones mm. and all sorts of, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of the day the earth stood still kind of sounds. Um, yeah, yeah. So that was my first. And I wrote the, you know, the main theme and the, the uh, background music. And it was quite quirky. It was sort of a, a mixture between 1950s style music and, and some crazy Danny Elfman kind of theme. That was, that was the approach that I originally went for. Uh, but then they changed the graphics. <laughs> Uh, mm. So I had to rewrite the music because uh, my uh, they made it quite quite different and the music didn't quite work with the new style graphics. Um, so mm. once they did the graphics um, and decided on the final format for that, um, I I redid the music and made it a bit more contemporary and more synthy sounding, uh, but it still kept it really simple. You know, I, I just come come off working on you know cameo and pinata and some other stuff, you know, all this big orchestral stuff. So I, I really didn't want to do that again. So I. I created some really simple sounding, uh, symphony electronic, um, little track as a fe- as a theme tune. And then we were quite limited to file size as well on those early, um, XBLA days. 
Um, so I, yeah. I, I, I wrote a quite a long track and then the programmer said half it because it's too long. It's taking up too much space. So, uh, okay. Um, and then, but the actual level music's quite long. I think the level music's around three minutes. And then as I wrote another track for the game over and the high score. Um, but yeah, I, the, the theme tune is, you know, I guess it's for me, it's kind of a throwback to the early games I used to play on, you know, on the 64 and the Amiga. You know, I always wanted to be able to, to work on those kind of games, you know, keep it simple, try and do something that's catchy. And yeah, that's, that's the theme to Jetpack Refueled. That was the main title from Jetpack Refueled. You know, as you were telling that story, the uh, the original idea of the kind of 50 sci-fi sound uh, sounds like a lot of fun, actually. In your habit of never throwing anything away, did you end up repurposing that at any point later in your career, or is that uh, still on the back burner somewhere? So, look, Rare actually, uh, when I was working at Rare, they were really good, actually. Uh, perhaps tracks that we didn't use in games or... Uh, stuff that isn't on the soundtrack that's for sale. Uh, just like the, the tracks that are lurking around on the composer's hard drives, every so often they, they'd let us put it on the Rare website uh, as a download, as an MP3. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I've got it on, because they've, they've rejigged the Rare website uh, a few times. But if you go to my website, which is steveburkmusic.com, and you navigate to the music page, um, mm -hmm. if you uh, 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 there's a SoundCloud player, and you can scroll down to there and... The, uh, the original Jetpack, the unused uh, Jetpack Refueled music's there. And it's got all the different versions of that kind of uh, sci-fi 1950s style uh, music is on there. And, uh, and a whole load of other games. <laughs> I mean, I worked on so many other games at Rare, at, uh, like prototypes that didn't come out. Like I, do, I worked on Cameo 2. I worked on uh, Tailwind, um, Savannah, a whole load. So on, on that page, there's... there's some of those tracks as well stuff that you wouldn't hear and get in any games um but 
So you, uh, you probably can't talk too much about Cameo too, but the compositions that you had done for the Cameo sequel, were they kind of still in that big bombastic orchestral Cameo, you know, the, the style that we would have known for uh, players of the original game? Um, no, I mean, I, I guess if Cameo 2 um, continued being, because I worked on it for about a year or so, I guess, um, I, I guess I would have continued with the orchestral stuff um, for the action scenes and you know the big you know the, the the epic scenes where you see castles and big landscapes you know it's, it's nice to keep that orchestral stuff there uh, but i was also i was kind of experimenting with um, more celtic sounding um and before i was, you you asked me about oh, the instrument what's one of my favorite wind instruments well mm. you know uh, i was actually recording some of my um i bought an irish whistle and i was intending to hire somebody to play it professionally on the score and i sketched out a bunch of tunes um for the Cameo 2, like the prototype, we had a, a version of the game running. Uh, I don't think that's been shown anywhere, but it, it's, it was quite different from Cameo 1, um, but it was all up and running. Uh, and also I, I created some audio templates, which is what I do on a lot of games. I kind of sketch out ideas and sound effects. And sometimes, in this case, I recorded some voiceover, kind of outlining the story, like what was happening, almost like a cutscene. Um, so I, I'd written some more... Uh, simplistic sounding music, not so well, uh, uh, smaller scale music uh, with a lot of Celtic influence. I mean, I, I grew up on the Isle of Man, which is a small island between the UK, between England and Ireland. There's a small island called the Isle of Man. And there's mm-hmm. quite, a, uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, Celtic influence there. Um, it's got its own language. It's you know, an, an ancient language, which I was taught at school. And also, it has, you know, the music style there is actually quite similar to the Scottish and Irish and Gaelic um, feel. So that's um, something that I kind of introduced in Cameo 1 and throughout parts of it. I actually uh, recorded an Irish singer at Rare um, on quite a lot of tracks. And I, you know, I, I wanted to do more of that on Cameo 2, um, but also record some traditional instruments, which uh, talking about... Talking about this, it's, uh, I, I, at some point I intend to uh, record some musicians on the Isle of Man, uh, some traditional musicians and singers, totally unrelated to games. But I, I was just—I'd quite like to record my own little mini album of uh, kind yeah. of Celtic music, um, just because you know I, I really enjoy that style of music. Not not fast, uh, you know, the sort of stuff you hear in the pubs necessarily, but the, the more traditional storytelling Celtic music. So I, mm, I've got that mm-hmm. as a, a, on my. A list of things to do as, as a pet project at some point. So that was the general approach that I was going to take on Cameo 2, along with all the big orchestral you know, action stuff as well. Um, it's a shame it didn't get made. It's looking really cool, uh, but you know, yeah. it is what it is. <laughs> Every few years, we get a little bit more uh, kind of tidbits of uh, you know a 3D render or... Mm-hmm you know, a developer quote or something telling us a little bit more about Cameo 2. And just every single time, it just makes my my heart drop a little bit like, oh, this sounded so good. This sounded like <laughs> something that I would just love to have sunk back into. Recently, we got a probably a bigger look at it than we ever had before in some of the special features for the uh, Rare Replay collection. But even that is just a taste that led me wanting more so uh, you've also created sound effects for Conquer Live and Reloaded, Perfect Dark Zero, Banjo-Kazooie, Nuts and Bolts, among some others. Uh, although you mentioned you didn't have any kind of formal training in sound effects or Foley or anything like that. How did that go after you had a few kind of sound effect experiences under your belt? Like, How do you feel proficient in that now? Yeah, so uh, I mean, before I 
joined Rare. I mean, I was familiar with the sound editing software. I use Pro Tools for recording musicians, mm -hmm. but it's mostly uh, music-based um, before I joined Rare. And uh, when I joined, joined Rare, it was, you know, uh, I guess the focus of my job was actually mostly sound design, uh, along with obviously writing the music as well for various games. But a big chunk of my work at Rare was uh, sound design. Yeah, I mean, uh, I actually really enjoy it. I mean, I, I loved being able to do sound design one day, maybe, and the next day do write some tunes. It was, uh, it was yeah. a great way of, you know, uh, keeping fresh to it because, you know, you, you, you balance between musical stuff and recording different voices or going out and recording some sounds outside. Um, so, yeah, so I, I just learned by myself. And actually, a, a lot of the stuff at, at Rare, and I kind of just taught myself, you know, it, the job needs doing. Here's a microphone. You know, we've got some sound libraries if we need to you know, get some stock sounds, but often we manipulate those to make them unique. But whenever I had the chance, I'd always try and record, especially voices and you know, character sounds. I'd always record you know, original sounds for those. And, you know, um, over the years, I kind of picked up how to do it and how to mix and direct. I mean, a lot of the time I'd be like directing um, people in the studio, you know, how to get the right performance for the, for the character and, uh, putting sound effects to cut scenes and creating ambiences and uh, actually quite a big chunk of, the, of doing audio for games is uh, how does it work in the context of the game? There's the whole technical um, element where, you know, you, you have a sound recorded, but how, how do you get out working with a character or, you know, based on mm -hmm. velocity, how hard you hit something or maybe variations, you know, what happens when a character falls off a cliff and hits the ground compared to being, hit by another character. Maybe it needs different sound effects and you need all the technical stuff behind it is, uh, I thought it was really interesting. So I, I was really happy to yeah, learn about that. Is. Um, and on quite a few games, I did um, sound effects, um, like Cameo did um, a lot of sound effects on that. And we also had um, Evelyn. Uh, Evelyn worked on uh, sound effects as well, Evelyn Novakovich and John Silk and Ben Cullum. Those guys uh, uh, also did many of the sounds on Cameo. Uh, so like on Banjo, Nuts and Bolts, I didn't do any music on that, um, but I did, um, I recorded all the uh, all the character voices. So any time a character makes a sound or a character moves around uh, and, you know, bangs into things or picks things up, uh, <laughs> all, all the character sounds were um, the ones that I created. So I'd, I'd find the people who did, if they were still at the company, I'd find the people who did the original voices. So for example, Chris Sutherland uh, did the original mm -hmm. voice for, uh, banjo and Kazooie and a whole load of other characters from the original banjo. Uh, so I recorded him for uh, Nuts and Bolts. Uh, I got him to recreate the sounds that he did on the, on the original games and, you know, new sounds for the new animations. And also Chris Seaver, who's the, obviously the designer um, of Conker. Uh -huh. um, so he um, did... Oh, I think it was Grunty. He did the uh, the witch character in not so, in the original one, and he also redid that in Nuts and Bolts. And I think I did uh, a whole load of characters as well. Uh, there was about nine or ten characters that I recorded, putting on funny voices and manipulating the sounds. Um, but I think working in computer, if you if you ever get a chance to work, you know, people get a chance to work uh, in doing sound effects for games. I, I think it's it's really quite rewarding, you know, hearing the sounds that you create and in the context of the game. Um, and also, so the uh, the Perfect Dark Zero and Conquer Live and Reloaded. Uh, the only real contribution I did to that was I re I went to uh, Idaho, 
um, and recorded uh, the gun sounds. We had a field trip with Microsoft um, to Idaho, and we we had like three or four days shooting stuff. You know, we had all different, oh, wow. a whole array of different weapons you know, from shotguns to pistols to uh, semi-automatics. I mean, there must have been about twenty. We hired a um, some special forces guy to bring along all his uh, different weapons. Of and, course, you go out to the American countryside for uh, that. Yeah, it was. It, yes, it was in the American countryside. And <laughs> uh, we had all these. And Microsoft, um, the guys in Seattle came over as well. And we mm-hmm. had all the microphones set up, you know, down the field, you know, close miking the objects that we were shooting at. Um, and also the sound from you know, firing the weapon, uh, the sound of a bullet zipping down, down the field. Um, we'd also close mic the, uh, the, the handling sounds. So whenever you, like if you took a silencer on and off, you're mm-hmm. putting the, the, uh, the magazine into the gun, uh, you know, all the, the, the movement sounds that a gun would make. So we, we recorded all those. And I, I think some of those sounds were used in Perfect Dart Zero and uh, I believe in Conquer Live and Reloaded. And uh, speaking some of that classic rare, you're bringing another piece from uh, probably... Uh, maybe one of the most famous rare musical pieces to come out of that studio. And this was something that uh, was composed long before you ever arrived at the company, but by one of your esteemed colleagues, if you want to introduce that. Yeah, I mean, when I grew up, I, I, I was playing on computers like the Commodore 64, the Amiga, and then the PC. I never really, I, I never had a, a game console at home. Um, and I know, I know they were really popular, like in the States. I think most people probably played on you know mm-hmm. snares and n64 and things like that but um where i was living on the isle of man most people just you know it was amiga atari st commodore 64 is that kind of thing um so i i didn't really know about a lot of the you know the, the game music on on um on these consoles but i do remember hearing that piece of music by dave by dave wise uh in donkey kong country and i i, I don't know where i heard it but i i, I can remember hearing it as a kid <laughs> And when I joined Rare and I saw the, you know, the games that they'd worked on um, and you know, had a go on Donkey Kong Country, it's like, oh, wow, I remember that track. That's, that's probably one of the most memorable uh, pieces of game music I've ever heard. It was just um, so it's yeah, the aquatic ambience from Donkey Kong Country. And I think it's uh, you know, a testament to Dave Wise's genius. It's an absolutely amazing piece of music. Thank you. 
was Aquatic Ambiance by David Wise from Donkey Kong Country. Such a strange soundtrack, that one. It's, uh, it contrasts so much with the, uh, the Mario and Kirby kind of like upbeat, uh, you know, bouncy, cartoony fare. It was very mm, kind of moody and uh, lonely and slow-paced. And so uh, Rare was always kind of innovating and, and doing things their own way and uh, really kind of blazing trails wherever they went. And so it uh, must have been exciting kind of coming up into this uh, this environment in which freedom and experimentation was encouraged. Ever since leaving Rare, uh, what kind of work have you done independently from Rare and Microsoft? So uh, actually a lot of work I've been doing is through people I've, um, I used to work with. Um, you know, people on the game team's uh, at Rare, or people I would net- networked with while I was still at Microsoft. Um, so one of the first games that I worked on after leaving Rare was Fusion Genesis, and that was uh, a Microsoft-produced game um, for Xbox 360 Live. And the designer on that was uh, Chris Tilston, who was actually a designer on Perfect Dark. So, uh, And he said, you know, do you want to come along and, and write the music to the game? And that was not long after I left Rare, I think. That was um, one of the first projects. So that was great. That was, you know, with people I'd already worked with, some of the other team members on that game I'd worked with uh, at, at Rare. And mm-hmm. it was great. I, it's, so I, I, I left Rare to just to try something different because I'd been there for nearly nine years and I thought, oh, I'd, I'd quite like to try, you know, some freelance and contract stuff, see how it works out. So to get that uh, project was, you know, is really good. And I think I wrote about 70 minutes of music, 60 or 70 minutes of music. And um, it took about three months to do. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed that. And other games I've worked with, uh, with ex-Rare people, uh, a little project called Sky Smash 1918, which was just three people um, who we used to work together, and it's an iOS game, and it's like a top-down uh, shooter game, uh, like a World War mm. II game. Uh, and that again, <laughs> technical limitations. We could only I could only write a certain amount of music for that because we didn't have a lot mm, of memory. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and other projects I've worked with, I, I um, co-composed the music to Fable Heroes, which was a game based on the Fable mm. franchise for for Lionhead Studios. And I wrote that with Robin Beanland. So Robin is audio director at, uh, or music director at Rare. And he asked me along and said, do you want to help out on, on the Fable game? So that was another great little project to do. Um, and uh, quite a few of them. I mean, I've, I've literally just, uh, another game's just come out last week. And I uh, worked with um, Sir Ed Bryan and Will Bryan, who were you know some of the leading forces behind the Banjo Kazooie games and Viva Pinata, you know the, the hmm. lead programmers and artists on those games, uh, and they're working at a company called Nosy Crow, and Nosy Crow creates um, the, the app side of that company to create um, like storybooks for kids, uh, iPad uh, storybooks for kids, and their latest one is Goldilocks and Little Bear. The one I'm really looking forward to is Raging Justice, because uh, it's taken quite a while to make, but there's three of us. Hmm. Uh, again, people who used to work on Cameo. There's Nick Macon, uh, Jay Howes, and myself. Um, so I'm doing the music and the sound effects. And um, that's coming out early next year on Xbox One. And again, that's, that's a kind of throwback to my early days of being interested in games. You know, it's 
it, it, I guess it's more of like an arcade style game, this particular one. And so I used to like playing games in the arcade as well. So it's like a, a brawler. Very cool. So yes, this next piece is a uh, short little medley of songs from the Ma- uh, Raging Justice soundtrack, like you had just mentioned. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the vision behind Raging Justice and kind of put us in the right headspace and give us the right imagery to really take in these, these sounds? Hmm. So it's, if you imagine a, being back in the arcades in the 90s and you're playing games like uh, Streets of Rage or um, Street Fighter and these kind of brawler games, it's basically a modern take on that. And uh, it's a very small team. So there's three developers making it. And I got to uh, write all sorts of crazy symphony music with screaming guitars and crazy percussion and whatever crazy uh, synthy sounds were lurking around on my computer. I fired all those up and, you know, there were no rules on this one. It's like, I, I could do whatever I want to, cause it was, you know, it's just the, the three of us making the game. And, um, I, I've every, every level's got a different piece of music. And again, I've probably written more music than is actually needed, but I, I, <laughs> I was enjoying writing it. So I just kept on going. And, yeah, um, so I, I think there's probably going to be over 40 minutes, 45 minutes of music at least uh, when this game comes out. But all very retro. You've got to put your headspace back in. You know, you're in the yeah, arcades yeah. in the 90s. Very cool. So let's listen to a little bit of Raging Justice. Raging Justice.
That is Raging Justice coming early 2016 on Xbox One, Steam, iOS, and other platforms as uh, music and sound effects composed by Steve Burke, who's in the studio with us right now, so to speak. (laughs) The studio. (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) Yeah, so you mentioned earlier, most recently you've been working on music and presumably some sound effects and voices, perhaps, for ukulele with Grant Kirkhope and David Weiss, again, the uh, uh, kind of the heavyweights from Rare Composition Days. Uh, what is your role in that team? Tell me a bit about the the process there. Uh, well, for the Kickstarter, I just helped doing the sound effects for it. So I, I came along and I, I helped for a couple of weeks um, mm-hmm. recording the different sounds that the characters make as they wander around. And uh, I recorded a few different voices. And uh, I was mostly dealing with uh, Chris Sutherland, who is one of the founders at, at Playtonic. And he'd recorded his voice and some other voices um, near his studio over there. And I took those and kind of made them game friendly, you know, pitched them up and made them so it sound really cool when you hit a character mm-hmm. or when a character's running around. So, yeah, so for the Kickstarter, it was, um, I just did the sound effects on that. It was uh, Grant's, Grant Kirkhope's music. It was in the, um, in the Kickstarter video. And also Dave Wise has written a, a really cool tune as well. Uh, so those are the main composers. So I believe I'm going to be just helping out with some extra uh, music tracks on that but I, I i think this game is is mostly going to be grant and dave's uh so i'm, I'm okay. kind of i'm kind of looking forward to to hearing hearing some more of their of their music on this one little last bit on ukulele here and this is the uh the exclusive question that everyone is is dying to know uh our, our darren gargett again asks if you're handling the sound effects on ukulele will there be any fart noises uh <laughs> dear. um I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them. I, I, I would be surprised, <laughs> I, I'd be surprised if there isn't a few little farts in there uh, and some burps and other bodily noises. Um, uh, it would, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, put my name on the line here, but I, I would be, <laughs> I would be surprised if there aren't. <laughs> They'll have your neck for this if you're wrong. Yeah, you know, oh it's going to come front page on Kotaku the next day. <laughs> Sound of play exclusive bodily noises and yeah. ukulele question mark. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, we have another track here from the classic arcade era. And this is another piece from Space Harrier, if you want to introduce that. Yeah, Space Harrier is um, it's a game I used to play in the arcades a lot. I used to play Paperboy, Arkanoid, Space Harrier, and some of the old you know, Star Wars games. And that theme, I don't, it reminds me of something, actually. I'm not sure if it's like Space 1999 or something. It, it kind of has, it kind of reminded me of another TV theme. But it was, it was really catchy, and... You know, whenever you go into the arcade, I mean, every single arcade uh, cabinet was competing for your attention. You know, they're all super loud volumes. But uh, that that tune often cut through and uh, it really kind of set the mood up for the game. It's one of those uh, tracks that, you know, it's probably been 20 years since I actually sat down and played that in an arcade, but I can still remember it. <laughs>
that was the main titles from Space Harrier. Listeners to Sound of Play, that might sound a bit familiar. I mean, probably because it's a uh, pretty famous and excellent piece of video game music. So people who are listening to this anyways will uh, um, probably have run across it before. It's a wonderful piece. But also, the Big Twice remix was featured on Sound of Play, episode number 21. So if you're really digging that piece and, and wanting to hear more like it, then we have a nice remix of it on Sound of Play 21. All that is left, we are going to leave our audience with a, another piece from the majestic cameo Elements of Power. Uh, we'll let you introduce that one in just a moment. But um, before we do that, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been really wonderful having you here and getting to talk to you for a, a good long while here. Thank you for this portion of your day. Oh, thank you for getting in touch. And yeah, I've really enjoyed this. So yeah, thank you, Ryan, for inviting me along. I mean, I, I'm a massive game music fan. And mm -hmm. you know, it's, at heart, I, I still, I just love finding out about game music and, you know, and how people go about actually making it and you know, what their experiences mm, yeah. are. So it's, yeah, it, it's nice for me to think back to, you know, when I first you know, got interested in it as well. So it's, yeah, it's been a pleasure to, to take part. Well, and I'm hoping we have some more kind of future budding game music designers out there in the audience that can maybe hear some of this cameo music for the first time and get some ideas of their own. Anyways, as you've heard once again, it's not just about what we like. So if you venture over to our forum at canonrinse.com, you can request your favorites and we'll continue to include a selection of those in the playlist for each show. So if you could just leave Sound to Play a review on iTunes, that would help our exposure out. And um, I just wanted to thank Steve Burke for coming on. And we will leave you with one final track from Cameo Elements of Power. If you wanted to talk a little bit about what this track means to you and uh, give us a little bit of that, that passion that is so obviously went into the writing of the music here. Yeah, so this track was written for Crossing Over a Bridge doesn't sound terribly dramatic but <laughs> this is on uh, near the start of the game um you've you've knocked these ball trolls off the uh, side of a level and there's a little bit of a scene where you, you've got to cross a bridge and i thought ooh, <sighs> yeah what can i do here so i oh, I, yeah, just, yeah. I decided to yeah I, I thought i'd have a go with uh, writing some more choral stuff i mean it's got the strings uh string orchestra in the background but the focus of this track is actually the choir so um whereas a lot of the other tracks in cameo the choir is kind of quite embedded in it you know it's more just to highlight what's happening in the orchestra this one the choir is kind of the, the focus of it so I, that's one of the reasons i wrote this one so yes as you're crossing over the bridge um this tune uh plays along on the first level and i also did a slightly different version of it for the end uh cutscene uh in the game the very mm. final cutscene in the game i added some uh some percussion some uh japanese uh, percussion underneath it which is part of the music to the final cutscene so it, it kind of you know sums up the, the last thing you'd hear in a game as well but yeah always always fun to write for a, a big orchestra and choir and uh it's also the last uh track on the soundtrack cd as well yeah i was going to ask about that because i i kind of remember this being the one that would uh that would kind of play me out when i was listening to it and it is uh, such a majestic piece and such a, a lovely like it, it sounded like a really nice send-off for that uh that soundtrack cd yeah i mean it's a bit of a pretentious title legend unfolds <laughs> 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 to be honest, I, I have no idea why i came why we use that name but 
I thought, well, let's let's end it with something that sounds vaguely dramatic, you know, just in case we make it's a better, sequel. Better than cameo crosses a bridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like here we are crossing a bridge, or legend unfolds. Legend unfolds. It is. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So this is the legend unfolds by Steve Burke, our guest here today from Cameo Elements of Power. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Sound of Play. Mm-hmm.